we're trained in demolitions. We get to blow stuff up occasionally. And I don't know if you've ever got to blow anything up or whatever, obviously in a controlled professional environment, <laughs> but, uh, but it's really cool. It's as cool as you would ever think it was. I want to be my current self from this point forward. I want to learn how to play piano. Working with human beings. Drinking wine in the middle of the day. I want to be a fire truck driver. I'm going to be the next greatest painter. Just kind of work with kids, getting them ahead in life. I want to be a welder. I want to be a beach bum. I want to be a baseball player. Brewmaster. A winemaker. Professional snuggler. Let me mention those sweet, hot lavender baths and writing in the evening. What's up, everybody? I'm Blake Fletcher, and this is the Half Hour Intern Podcast, where we explore the interesting paths people take in life. If you'd like to support episodes like this being made, please check out the show's Patreon page at patreon.com slash halfhourintern. This particular episode is brought to you by Vincent, one of our Patreon subscribers. Um, without our Patreon subscribers, the show would not be able to exist. So thank you so much to Vincent. Thank you to all the Patreon subscribers. And on to today's episode. In this interview, I, inter- I, <laughs> in this interview, I interview Steve Hentz, who is just such a rad dude. He is a Navy diver, and specifically, he is a contributor construction Navy divers. So he is part of a group or was part of a group, I should say. He is, he's retired from the Navy now, um, but he was part of a group called the CBs, um, which it stands for like the letter C, the letter B, construction battalion. So he would do underground construction on various stationary objects in the ocean. So um, I guess typical Navy divers will do construction things and, and maintenance on the naval ships. And that was like the one thing that, that Steve did not do. He was part of this smaller group called the Seabees, and they would work on more stationary things. And he gets into all the different sorts of things that they did underwater. But it sounds like such a badass job. He got to work with explosives, as you heard in the little pre-intro part, and uh, and do so much other cool stuff as well. So he will talk about like how deep you get to go, how long you stay under the water for, uh, what it's like working in complete darkness, all these other things. So if you ever wondered what it's like to have a job in the ocean, uh, this is the episode for you. Without further ado, here is Navy Diver. Steve, thanks so much for coming on the show today. Thanks for having me. Yeah, man, absolutely. So why don't you first take us back to joining the Navy, wanting to be a diver, and then freaking failing the test for the first time. I can't believe that that happened. Uh, Tell us all about that. Oh, uh, it was a long time ago, thank God. But um, no, I was a young guy. I, right out of high school, I joined the Navy. I was 17 years old. Uh, I had grown up in Washington, come from a very small town, kind of out in the middle of nowhere. And I didn't know a lot about the world or anything around me. But by that point, I had been diving as a hobby diver for some time. And I'd heard that there was this diving thing going on in the Navy. And then about a year before I graduated, uh, my older brother had joined the Navy, and he became a diver, and he told me more about it, and I thought that sounds pretty cool. So right out of high school, I joined the Navy and uh, get myself in on a dive program, and once I got to boot camp, uh, among all the other wonderful things you get to do in boot camp, you had to go over and take the diver's physical exam or test. It's a physical test. You do run, swim, push-ups, pull-ups, sit-ups, so, and you have all these, there's, uh, they're timed, you have uh, minimum numbers, things like this you have to meet. And for the most part, I wasn't really worried about it initially. They told me you have to swim. And it's like, well, I, I can swim, you know. And they told me you can run. It's like, I don't like to run, but I can do it. And the push-ups, pull-ups, sit-ups, I'll manage. But when I actually got to boot camp, we got in the pool and everything for the first one. 
And they says, uh, all right, you have, I think it's, uh, was it 12 and a half minutes to swim your, uh, or no, it's 15 minutes to swim your 500 meters. And then they said breaststroke or side stroke only. And that's when I knew I had a problem because I didn't even know what either of those were. <laughs> <laughs> that would definitely make it difficult. Um, I grew up out in the country. You know, we swam above the water or we swam below the water. But this fancy, you know, name of uh, swimming kind of came new to me. And uh, they said go and everybody took off. And I kind of held up for just a sec to see what everybody else was doing. I don't know if you're familiar with what a, a proper side stroke looks like. But at that time, I wasn't. And I took off on what my best estimation of it was, which was kind of like a doggy paddle laying on my side. Yeah. And it didn't go well. It didn't go well at all. After about a lap and a half, one of the uh, graders there, he looks at me and he says, what are you doing? And I said, side stroke. And he says, out of the pool. <laughs> so, <laughs> just a side stroke with like a big question mark on yeah, the end of it. Like, you know, what does it look like <laughs> I'm doing? Um, but no, uh, so that's when I realized I had a problem. Now, the only thing that was going in my favor was I had three opportunities to pass this. So I'm like, well, I'm not dead in the water yet, if you'll excuse the pun. But uh, I went back and I wound up, I, the universe smiled on me on this day because the guy I shared a bunk with in boot camp, uh, I was on the bottom bunk, my bunk mate on top, was a fellow named Rich. And he had been in college for like three years on a swimming scholarship. So when I got back into the uh, barracks later that day, I says, hey, Rich, what's a side stroke? And he spent some time working with me and everything and kind of taught me. And there was a lot of days just uh, me laying on the tile floor, learning the motions, and then another opportunity to practice in the pool. And uh, eventually I wound up going back. I got two more opportunities to uh, try this. The second time I went back, it was much better. I did not make the time, but they left me in the water the whole time, which it's an improvement. Yeah, yeah, for sure. They didn't have to yank you out. Yeah, which I was pretty excited about. So you know, something must be going my way. And then when I went back for the third time, I was really on top of it. I, I felt good in everything. And I did it and everybody got in there, swam my little heart out. And I came up. It was 12 seconds over the time. That right there, believe it or not, looking back, was a huge life lesson. And that was kind of one of those things where, like I said, it was the first major thing I'd ever set out to do in my life and failed at. And it wasn't one of those things where they said, well, you're close enough. You can go anyway or something. It's just, nope, nope, no good. You didn't make it away with you. And that hurt pretty bad. I bet it's, I love, uh, I'll love to hear your perspective, I guess, as we talk about how you then ended up being able to tr to try out again a decade later and, and becoming a diver because so much of the time when something like that happens in life when you like really kind of give something your all or and particularly that story like you gave it your all three separate times but when you give something your all and you don't succeed it puts such a bad taste in your mouth because we're so tied to our ego you know and it's like that that bruises your ego so bad so you just get this attitude of like well f that thing then like i don't even care about this anymore and i don't even want to look at it i don't want to do it at all you know i'm i'm very impressed i guess with the fact that you e even revisited the idea of trying it again well it, it was really kind of a rant well i don't want to say random but it was sort of weird the way i i eventually came back to it because after I failed it in boot camp. I was told that I couldn't even try again for, I think it was three years. Turns out that may not have been entirely true. But, you know, when you talk to people in the military, they put you where they want you and not always where you want to be. So you don't always get an accurate depiction for everything they tell you. But uh, they told me I couldn't even try for three years. So I just I stopped thinking about it. 
And uh, I was new in the Navy. I continued on. I wound up uh, becoming an equipment operator in the CBs and uh, started moving that way. And it was interesting. I was doing some neat stuff, having fun and still moving on with life. So I really didn't even think about it for, well, like I said, almost 10 years. And, yeah. Yeah. Question. Uh, you mentioned about yeah. them kind of putting you where they want you rather than you getting to go and do exactly what you want. I've always kind of wondered that about the Navy and the Army and everything. Did you, how you said, you know, you wanted to be a diver and, and you went out to be a diver kind of right off the bat. Do, do you really mean that like right off the bat or when you apply to be in the Navy or and when you very first start out, do you have to just be like a general naval guy for a year or something before they allow you to request to do something? Most people, I would say probably 95% of the people who join the military, I can mostly only speak on the Navy because that was the only one I'm in, but you know, working with other services and talking with them, it's relatively analogous. But uh, most, 95% of the people, when you join, you're joining, you have a contract and it says, you know, I'm joining, I'm going to be in the military with you X amount of time, and, and you are going to provide me with the opportunity anyway for this training or that training. So when you first join, you go to boot camp and then you should immediately be going to some sort of schooling of your choice or, you know, something like that that you had planned as you enlisted. Uh, about 5% of people, um, I don't know the other surfaces, but I know in the Navy, you can just because in the Navy and the fleet where they have ships and everything, they just they call them undesignated. And it's the people who this, I'm just joining the Navy and I'll ride it out for a year or two and decide what job I want then. And there are a few of those out there, but most people have a plan, a school pick that they will be in a pipeline for. That's awesome. That's so interesting. I would have definitely thought that those numbers would be flipped. That like 5% of people would know what they wanted to do. And like 95% would just be like, I got no idea. Now, well, like I said, it's, it's something. Uh, now, the jobs they tell you, the descriptions you get, they might not always be the most accurate or whatever, but... Or the biggest thing is a lot of the people you're going to talk to when you're actually joining the military or something, unless they just happen to have had the job that you're looking to go for, they don't always know a lot about it. They can tell you the same thing you can read in a book or something, or I guess these days you can look it up online and things. Couldn't do that back in the 80s and 90s. But, uh, you know, they can only tell you technical information. Like I, I became a CV, which is really just this random little left-handed part of the Navy. And my recruiters and stuff knew nothing about it. They're like, well, that's people who don't go on ships and I don't know anything about them. Good luck. So, Yeah, yeah. So tell us about the CBs, by the way. You, you obviously um, mentioned a couple times that that is what you ended up doing and operating yeah. machinery for them. Uh, the CBs, they, as I said, they're kind of this little left-handed bastard stepchildren of the Navy. Uh, CB standing for Construction Battalion. Uh, this is a group that was put together back in 42 uh, because during the war, they had a need for construction services to support the war effort. And because they were often in hostile areas, they couldn't just hire contractors or civilians to bring them in there because you can't give them weapons or anything to defend themselves. Right. So they said, we need to develop some sort of construction organization that can build but also take care of themselves if they have to. And it was around that time, 1942, when uh, Admiral Ben Morrell uh, pitched the whole idea and got it rolling and uh, developed the Seabees. And they basically are just a combat construction force. They co have different rates that cover most of your general construction 
fields, uh, everything from equipment operators and mechanics to uh, like carpenters, uh, welders, steel workers, uh, engineer types. When I say engineer, I mean like the people you would see out on the road doing like site work with uh, like that scope and the uh, Philadelphia rod, the measuring rod. I don't know, any idea what I'm talking about there? Yeah, yeah, for sure. Um, stuff like that. So it was these kind of uh, jobs that they needed. And that's kind of where I fell into not knowing anything about it. It was one of these, my whole plan was to be a diver. And they're like, well, you'll be a diver, but you have to have a school too. And I just, I randomly kind of, well, I'm going to be a diver. I saw there was never the concept of not making it in my mind. So when I just picked a job, I just picked the only thing I'd ever even heard of, which they said EO, equipment operator. And my older brother had done that. So, well, I've heard of that. Mark that down. <laughs> For and sure. It's, because, the, well, it's like the way that most of us choose our jobs. It's like, oh, my dad does this. Or, oh, I've heard well, of someone that does this. This sounds that's good. That's all it was. I didn't know anything about it. It was the only one I'd heard of. But in my mind, it didn't matter because I was going to be a diver anyway. So it, at least initially, it was irrelevant. Uh, right, right. So now that you are one of the CBs, about 10 years in, you, uh, you get the opportunity to take the test again, or you decide to well, take the test again? Well, um, I, by this point in time, I spent five years stationed in Gulfport, Mississippi, been in and out of there, uh, spent three years in Annapolis, Maryland, and uh, had then been sent over here to where I am now, San Diego. And I had gotten put in the training department of our command there. And, well, they do kind of, as the name would imply, you know, training, because for the military, you're always training on something. Um, if you're not working or in the middle of a war, you're training. It's just the way it is. So the training department, things like that are kind of big business. And I wound up getting in there, which at first was kind of nerve wracking because I wasn't what you would call the, you know, go to guy or typical like high school. I went pro school or any of that. Um, matter of fact, I rarely even showed up to a lot of high school and stuff like that. So <laughs> yeah. the notion of any kind of, you know, me and academics or teaching seems super foreign, but I wound up been there and without getting terribly far on that i discovered in short order it was something i actually really really enjoyed and one of the jobs we had in, in the department there was a, what we call an indocker indoctrination class when uh, we get the people who are brand new into the command they come in and uh, it's that way you don't just show up to your first day of work and everybody's like do this you know and you have no idea what's going on uh they have it's uh, about a week long and different people throughout the day come in explain what goes on what will be expected and just a lot of different things that you know you'll expect to be going on for your time here in this organization or wherever you're at mm -hmm. and it could be brand new people literally just joined the military it could have been people like myself who'd been in for many years things like that anyway whenever we started these on day one just like you probably had to do in any class you've ever taken that you were in for more than a day or something, you always play the hi, my name is game where the teacher comes in, they introduce themselves and everything. And, uh, you know, they tell a little bit and then they say, all right, you know, each person stand up and tell us a little bit about yourself, blah, blah, blah. Love it. Love that game. So we all had done that and everything. And one of the things I always ask during this, because a lot of these people were new in the military, was uh, why did you join the Navy? You know, it seemed a very relevant question and everything. So uh, we'd done this. And I'd done this for several classes. I'd been doing this for probably about two years by this point in time. I'd given this class half dozen times, played this game many times. And uh, at this one day, after we'd gone through everything, uh, 
we were kind of wrapping that up, about to take a little break. And one of the students, a young little kid, he was probably like 18, probably looked as silly as I did when I was 18. Is like, why uh, did you join the Navy, Steve? Exactly. I love it. it. He looked at me and says, why did you join the Navy? And I looked at him and I thought about it for a half second. I said, well, I joined the Navy to be a diver, actually. And he goes, oh, you're a diver? Because in the Navy, that's kind of a big deal. It's not as cool as being like a SEAL or something, but diver's kind of a big deal. You know, there's not a lot of them. You know, you get to do a lot of cool stuff. So it's got a little prestige behind it. So he's like, oh, you're a diver? And I'm like, oh, no, no, I'm not. You know? And he's, oh, why not? And uh, and I told him, you know, gave him the 30-second version of failing the swim test in uh, boot camp and everything. And then he's like, well, can you try again? And I'm like, well, yeah. And he's like, well, why don't you? And I thought about it for a minute, and I did not have a good answer for why I hadn't tried again. That's so um, great. That's something that it's like it's like when you're having a conversation with a little kid, like a five year old, and they say, you know, they just say something that only a five year old can have that sort of wisdom, you know, because yep. they haven't been beaten down by the world. It's like that guy had that even at 18 years old, like, uh, well, why don't you just do it again? You know, yeah, and it's like do it again. to yeah. anybody else who's in their like late 20s or whatever who's experienced failure is like, what do you mean? Why don't I do it again? Like I was crushed by this thing mentally. Like that's why I don't do it again. But it's like, it's just so optimistic and lighthearted. And it's like, yeah, you know what? I guess I should do it again. I love that. And, and it really was. It was one of those things he asked. And at first I, I don't know, I found like I was going to say something, but then I stopped and for the life of me, I just, I did not have a reasonable answer. So it's like, gosh, I mean, before I tried to say, well, I, I knew I wasn't supposed to for a while. And then I had gotten married and had a wife and some kids and my life got a little busy and everything, but that didn't last forever. Yeah. And by this point and in this time, I, 18, you just like, I don't know what the hell you're talking about, man. You know, like that doesn't um, answer the this, question at all. At this point, you know, I'd gotten, you know, divorced from the wife. I was single. I didn't have anything major going on in my life. It's like, why don't I do this again? So I thought about it kind of for the rest of the, the morning as class was going on. And when we broke for lunch, I went back to my office there and I went to my buddy, uh, Mario, really good buddy of mine who I worked with. And uh, I looked at him and says, Mario, I'm going to dive school. And he's like, what? And I says, uh, I'm going to dive school. He had heard, you know, I told him kind of the nickel story, the same thing failing out because he himself had uh, gone for buds, uh, seals. And didn't quite make it. Very difficult program. Nothing to be ashamed of. But uh, So he was, he's like, oh, cool. And the next morning he met me at work at 4.30. And I started training and getting in shape. And getting my paperwork and everything together. And about a year, year after that, I was on my way to dive school. That's great, man. That's such a great story. So obviously, uh, spoiler alert, you end up passing it the second yes, time. Yes, yes, I passed. Yes. So, uh, so talk to us about the various jobs that you do as a CB uh, for the Navy when you're a diver. Well, as a CB diver, UCT, underwater construction teams, it's a lot different than when people say Navy diver. Because most people, when you say Navy diver, the typical Navy diver is they handle ship's husbandry. They attend to all the Navy ships and submarines and just all the maintenance and stuff like that that would go on with it. And it's a wonderful job and they're great at it or whatever. But there's a whole lot of other things that happen in the water. And almost every other thing that happens in the water falls into the realm of the CB diver. Um, primarily, our purpose was construction. If you needed something built and it needed to be in the water, that's what we did. Something that wasn't a boat. Yeah. Something in bottom, on bottom, near bottom, um, 
whatever it was, if you had something that was in there and you didn't want it there anymore, we could get rid of it. Uh, some of, actually, I mean, you asked, I did a little thinking and probably some of the coolest jobs I ever got to do. And one of the cool things about being a CB diver is uh, we're trained in demolitions. We get to blow stuff up occasionally. And I don't know if you've ever got to blow anything up or whatever, obviously in a controlled and professional environment, <laughs> but, uh, but it's really cool. It's as cool as you would ever think it was. A, I've and, never really gotten to blow anything up. B, I've definitely never gotten to blow anything up like underwater or on the like. Can you blow something up underwater? Oh yes, oh yes, absolutely. How? Please do explain. Like how? How, well, how, how does the explosive work exactly? It works just like it would on land. Really, the only difference is you can actually get a lot more effect from your explosion because if you do uh, a shot or something up here on surface or whatever. Uh, a lot of your explosive power is just kind of dissipated through the uh, atmosphere, you know? So you don't, I mean, if you've been near an explosion, you feel that percussive wave, mm -hmm. but by the time it gets to you, it's died down, you know, pressure over distance, you know, atoms bouncing, molecules bouncing off each other, dissipation, it gets smaller and smaller. So by the time it gets to you or something, it's a lot less. And that is true, even in, you know, the smaller areas where, you know, a charge or something would take place. Water, on the other hand, does not compress. So when you have an explosion underwater, there is very, very little dissipation of that blast energy. The water directly transfers it to whatever you're, you know, trying to get it to. So you lose very little of your explosive force because of the water. It's actually kind of helpful. That's so interesting. You feel like it would be the exact opposite just because water is well, if anybody's and ever, difficult. Yeah. If anybody's ever sucked water into an engine or something like that, or your car, your truck, Jeep, something like that, and wound up bringing it to a dead stop because it fills up a piston and everything, and you wind up breaking a piston or a rod, it's the same thing. Water does not compress. So it carries energy very, very well. Right, right. Now, what about the explosives? Like, what types of explosives can be, like, you obviously can't light it, or can you? Oh. Or, like, how does this work? Well, most of the time, well, for modern demolitions, you have your charge, and it can be anything from, everybody knows, like, C4. We've seen those in the movies, but there's a lot of other stuff out there without getting totally crazy or getting us thrown on some watch list for this. Um, <laughs> you know, uh, most of them, believe it or not, like you see in TV and movies, are very plasticized-type material, kind of like a clay, a Play-Doh, something like that. Mm -hmm. And with that, you prime in with, like, blasting cap which is little more than a really fancy like firecracker, a little bigger, a little fancier, but not much more. And these can be ignited either electrically, like you see this in the movies where they have a little thing and they push a button and it does it. Mm -hmm. Or it can be done with what we call time fuse, which is where you have is a special kind of rubber coated type fuse and it burns at a very specific rate. And you can hook that up to it and then you put a little igniter on it and you pop it and it lights it. And then you have a certain amount of time to get away before it, ignites the whole charge but beyond that no you just set your charge where you would want and run your uh wires or your igniter out and set it off water doesn't you know water gets a bad rap it's not <laughs> as bad as you would think you know it has yeah. its problems for sure but it's not as problematic as people would think especially with electricity man this sounds so rad it sounds like every like young boy's fantasy you just get it, to blow know, stuff up and underwater no less what's like the that, biggest thing you ever got to blow up um, well, that you asked uh, before we got together, past more some of my favorite jobs. And one of the neatest things I got to do while I was uh, there is uh, I found myself in the Philippines a few different times doing different jobs and trainings. And on one particular job, we were over there 
doing some cross-training with some of the Philippine military divers and special operations group. And it was kind of, you do some stuff for us, we'll do some stuff for you, we'll do some stuff together, it'll be a good time. And one of the things they needed from us is they had a little area, a beach area, where they went in and out for all their training for their recruits. But they had a couple of giant rocks. They were probably about the size of uh, a standard, I don't know, one-story single-bedroom home. Very, very large boulders right kind of in their path where they go in and out with their boats and rafts and stuff. And very often, I guess they were running into these or hitting their boat engines on them. If they came in a little early or late, missed kind of the skinny little path to get through. So uh, they asked, hey, is there anything you guys can do about this? And we're like, absolutely there is. How much explosives do you have? (laughs) (laughs) And uh, I don't remember how it all came to pass, but we turned up quite a lot of explosives. And uh, over the course of about, I guess it was about a week, a couple different, you know, shots a day or whatever, we turned these two rocks from uh, that size into nothing bigger than about a coffee can. That must have just been great. All right, so, Steve, uh, outside of the most awesome of jobs of blowing stuff up, what are uh, just give us a little quick rundown of some of the other types of jobs that you do. Uh, a lot of the other jobs, they're still cool because in the grand scheme of things, and maybe I'm just a little biased here, but the one thing I loved about being a diver is my worst day of work was probably still better than a lot of people's best day. Um, <laughs> For sure. It really was because in the end, I'm diving, I'm playing in the water. Um, we did a lot of, I guess, what you would call more run-of-the-mill or routine work. Um, anything you've ever seen that's out in the ocean requires a tremendous amount of maintenance and just, you know, looking after and repair. Saltwater is a merciless environment. So uh, we spent a lot of time, like, um, any anytime you've ever seen a mooring buoy where they might come and tie a ship up to, to you know, buoy it off. Uh, all the chains on anchors and everything that go down that strap that thing to the bottom require a lot of maintenance. And we've done jobs where we're just out there checking like 30 buoys just up and down, looking at chain link after chain link for 100 feet of water, or 80 feet of water, yeah. counting lengths and just looking for excessive wear, um, replacing zinc anodes. Um, not super glamorous, but just a lot of the work kind of falls into the category of routine maintenance. Yeah, for sure. But man, that's, yeah, like you said, A, such a better job than 99% of people on the planet. B, probably a better job than a good majority of the people in the Navy that you knew. Yeah, it it was. Uh, I mean, I don't want to like, and like I'm bragging or something, oh, I was awesome. But you know, (laughs) it's not so much that, but it's just a lot of things kind of, maybe it was that extra 10 years I paid my dues, you know, and the universe says, you know what, you've done your time. Here's a good one for you. Or some, but it really was. It was a great job. I worked with some great people and we had a lot of fun. And even the most mundane jobs we did in diving, just it was still better than sitting in a cubicle all day. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Now, when you're doing these jobs, like you mentioned, checking tons of different buoys throughout the day or whatever it is, um, are you diving like with a a tank on your back like the way people usually scuba dive or is there some sort of like fixed oxygen line near you that just allows you to just stay down there for like ever can you stay down there forever how long are these jobs um well in the navy we did both scuba diving the kind of what you're talking about with tanks on your back uh as well as what we refer to as surface supply 
uh, this is like the helmet with the umbilical going up to the surface and you're breathing off like air compressors up there. Right. You know, it's kind of, if you've ever seen, I don't know, the abyss or men of honor or something like that. Some of these great old diving movies, it's more in par with that. Uh, did a good bit of both. Once I retired from the Navy, continued working, it was strictly the surface supplied with the helmet and an umbilical going up to the surface. But uh, in, in the military, it was about a, a 50-50 split. Okay. A little bit of scuba, a little bit of surface supplied. And when you have surface supply, are you allowed to stay down there? Like, how long are you allowed to stay down there? At a certain point, well, does it start to mess with your body? Well, with this, every, your, the amount of time you can spend in the water, the number one fact that influences that is depth. How deep are you? Mm-hmm. Uh, the deeper you go, the less amount of time you can stay without having a need for some form of decompression on the way up. Uh, anything after about 25 feet is going to have a timeline. You can go down to 20, 25 feet in the water, and you could pretty much stay there forever and then come up and it's not going to be a problem. But any deeper than that, you're going to start running into lines and barriers and stuff like that. Now they have all kinds of tables and charts to figure this out. They say you went this deep and you stayed this long. So this is how you have to, you know, come up and stop or whatever. But uh, there are boundaries. Uh, I think the longest dive I ever did in the Navy was about six and a half hours. What was that for? Um, We were pulling cables out of the bottom. It was uh, it was old cables. Honestly, I don't even remember what they were for. I don't even ever know if I asked. It's just they said we're pulling cables out, so we just went and did it. But they were like copper wire cables for power transmission or something. Each one was probably about the size of your thumb, hmm. about that big around. And there was clusters of them. They ran out from a, a building that was up on shore, and they were buried and ran down out to probably like 300 yards offshore to where they were being used for something out there. But they were the whole path where they went from the house on shore to out there, they were buried about three to five feet under the bottom of the water, the mm-hmm. sand and everything on hard bond. So uh, we had to dig down, get them out and just slowly work them up a couple feet at a time all the way to shore. Hmm. And just like that job, the whole job wound up taking about a month and a half. We were at it, you know, five, six days a week. But uh, the longest dive I made, me and my buddy uh, made on that one was about six, six and a half hours in one shot. Does that start to just get really boring or or like, are you still excited to wake up for that every day? Slash, um, are you allowed to listen to music while you're doing this? No, uh, no, no music, no Walkmans, nothing like that. If you're in scoot Walkmans, listen to me. What is 1985? <laughs> How old am I? Um, no, if you're in scuba, the only thing you hear is just, you know, the little bubbles coming out of your regulator or something like that. If you're diving surface supplied, you'll have communications with the people up on top, kind of like a walkie-talkie sort of thing. But mostly what you listen to is the bubbles blowing beside you and your own thoughts. Hmm. You must be um, a very peaceful person. It's like you're meditating all day, every day. Well, you're working. It, my thought on it is you ever start doing something and you really get into it and suddenly you look around or somebody comes to say, hey, are you coming to dinner? And you're like, dinner? It's only... Well, where the last six hours go? Yeah, kind of totally, thing. of course. Um, it was more like that. I pretty well enjoyed what I did. I'm not going to lie. I didn't wake up every day and like, let's go jump in the water. Because, you know, sometimes I worked in places where it was cold, you know, and getting in the water when it's 18 degrees outside and your stuff's still wet from yesterday and everything. I mean, yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, for sure. Then but, you moved to San Diego. Yeah, so... Uh, well, I'm here now. It's still a few things along the way, but we got here now. So yeah, yeah. 
And then, so six and a half hours being the longest dive. How about your deepest dive? Like, how deep do you have to go? The deepest one I ever did was 220 feet. Uh, that's not super, super deep in the grand scheme of professional diving or anything like that. But uh, that sounds freaking uh, deep to me. That's crazy. It, it's well, the, the biggest thing, I guess, my biggest claim to fame on that one was it was a, it was an air dive. So I know that might not mean a lot to most people, but anybody who knows anything about diving, be like, what in the hell were you doing at 220 on air? So usually by that far, that kind of depth, you should be on some form of mixed gas. Interesting. So, so, so I did do one at 220 ahead. on air. That was quite a thing. When you say air, you just mean regular oxygen. What, what as you go deeper, they, they mix uh, other gases into the oxygen? Uh, yeah, well... Right now, what you and I are breathing, without turning this into you know a science lesson, we're breathing regular air, which is 21% oxygen, 79% nitrogen, roughly. Oh, um, you're going to get hate mail about percentages probably on this. I apologize. <laughs> but, um, but anyway, for our discussion, we'll call it that. Well, the thing is, as you go deeper in the water, because of the pressure, things like that, the actual percentage or the partial pressure of the oxygen begins to increase. So it's like you actually have more than 21% in the media you're breathing. And this becomes a problem because our bodies are only good for a certain window of oxygen tolerance. So as we begin to get higher in this uh, level, it becomes uh, toxic on our bodies. You can actually wind up, uh, it's called central nervous system oxygen toxicity. You can go into convulsions, all kinds of horrible things. Hmm. So if you're going deeper, what they do is they say, hey, air and, uh, uh, ox- or air and nitrogen, or, excuse me, oxygen, nitrogen, we're skipping you. And they start mixing up their own gases. And usually what they'll do is they'll use pure oxygen and most commonly helium because it's a good inert gas and it has no ill effects on the body directly. It makes you talk funny and it robs you of a little bit of heat because it's quite a thermal conductor. But nitrogen, what we're breathing right now, if you start taking that in in larger and larger amounts, it actually has a narcotic effect. If anybody's done any scuba diving or heard nitrogen narcosis, something like this, that's what it's caused by is the increased nitrogen percentage as you get deeper and that's so what to, whippets are right like people just like huff straight nitrogen and that's like they get high I, on that I, i'm sorry i, I i'm a yeah I'm, I'm a square i'm sorry i've never actually done a whippet i don't think they had those when i was a Neither kid but I. Con- I just, that's why i'm yeah. asking <laughs> I, I, I saw an abc after school special it was very informative uh, yeah um, yeah <laughs> but um yeah it's basically the same kind of thing like that feeling except as you go in the water once it comes on unlike a whippet or something like that which is transient only there for a very short time the feeling you get from the nitrogen buildup at depth stays with you the whole time you're at that depth so it's kind of, it's more like drinking or something when you have that beer you know or a few more once you start getting i guess drunk or buzzed or whatever it's going to be there a little while you know it's not and gonna you're trying it. to get a job done and here you are like tripping yep. balls while you're working kind of kind of yeah it's one of the you know not that I ever promote or encourage drinking or anything, but there's a reason I think that a lot of divers seem to do a fair amount of drinking. I don't know, just training to work in that debilitated condition, I guess. <laughs> yeah, for sure. So I feel like such an idiot that I didn't know the thing about the oxygen, nitrogen, and the extent to which nitrogen is in the air that we're no, breathing. No, because no, should, uh, no, why no. the hell do we always talk about oxygen being our main air source when it's not? I don't, I don't know. How, like, why does oxygen get all the love? What, what, what it is, is people, and when I say people, I mean, you know, well, I guess I just mean most people try and use the words air and oxygen interchangeably is kind of where I think a lot of that creates the confusion because air and oxygen are not the same thing. You know, oxygen is a component of air. It is, you know, 21% of it, but it's not the whole thing. Yeah. So 
Like people, when you think about going scuba diving, people are always talking, oh, the oxygen tank. But actually, no, it's just plain old air. Same thing we're breathing now, just, you know, compressed in there. Right. So, but oxygen, when you start getting into the higher level and stuff, I mean, you're getting into, you know, medical stuff. I mean, that's not the kind of thing Joe walking down the street is going to know. So, so tell us a little bit about the light and visibility and stuff like that with the different jobs. Obviously, at 220, there's probably no visibility, I imagine. Like, at what point does visibility sort of stop? And what sort of lighting do you have for these different jobs? You know, um, that was honestly one of my favorite things about diving is um, more often than not, there's very little to no visibility at all. Um, probably, I would say at least 70% of the work I've done underwater, uh, I may as well have been blindfolded. It was just completely blacked out because a lot of these places, if it's a soft bottom or whatever, as soon as you hit bottom and start working, you kick up all that sand, silt, mud, and it just total blackout everything. So very often, you're working completely in the dark. It's just all by feel. No way. That's crazy. It it's something I always enjoy. I'm not a big fan of bright light. Everybody always makes fun of me like I'm a vampire or something. I pretty much live in sunglasses and I don't go outside in the sun. But that's <laughs> one thing I always liked about it. It's ah, nice and dark and you know cool and shady down here. Yeah, yeah. We already covered the explosives under underwater. Another thing I would love to know about is concrete. Um, something you mentioned in your email when you were running through different jobs and this and that was about, you know, redoing concrete sometimes or, or doing a concrete pour. Oh, yeah, yeah. And I'm just like, how yeah. the hell do you set concrete in water? That just doesn't make sense to me at all. Uh, honestly, you do it just like you would anywhere else for the most part, really. Um, now, this is going to sound silly, but you ever done concrete before? Are you familiar with the basic process? No, no, I'm not. So that might be why I don't understand <laughs> how it can set underwater. Um, well, you got well. The whole thing about it setting underwater, concrete actually sets better underwater than it does on land, because concrete does not dry. It's actually a chemical process. It cures. And if you want to know what the difference is, look it up or something. I don't want to get into it, but um, it cures rather than dries. So, in order to get a good cure in your concrete, you want to control it and not let it happen too fast. It's kind of like maybe like a blacksmith or metal if you cool it down too quick it can become brittle and crack kind right. of thing yeah um concrete it's not quite so temperamental but the concept is still you know kind of true you want to let it allow itself to just cure at a very natural and calm rate and when you do it underwater it actually kind of gives it a much better environment for that carrying process to take place hmm. interesting uh, water that your concrete, excuse me, that cures underwater is typically by the time it's actually doing its job significantly stronger or harder than anything would have uh, gotten at the same time on land. I feel like I've learned so many basic things during this interview that I should have already known. This is no, <laughs> a very no, informative not. interview. Steve, let's go ahead and finish this thing up with some advice. I was contemplating what sort of advice there would be to give. And I think that the most poignant advice that, that you could probably give is advice for quote unquote failures because of the unique experience that you had at the beginning of this entire path that you've, you've gone down. So I guess like what advice would you give to people that have greatly failed at something in their life that maybe is something that they still kind of want to do? Um, well, number one, you know, nobody fails at anything unless they allow themselves to, you, you, you only fail as much as you allow yourself to. Um, I guess I could have called it, had I never gone back to it, that may have been a complete failure, but I got back to it. So I don't even really see it as a failure at this point so much as it was a setback. 
And in hindsight, it was a huge life lesson. So what I've always tried to do, and it sounds corny, I know, but find the positives. Um, everything, I don't want to be, oh, it all happens for a reason. Sometimes it's bad luck or whatever, but find the positives. You know, I became, in that moment, I, I was a broken little punk 15 or 17-year-old kid, but from it, I became a lot more aware of the world around me and, you know, realized that, no, you know, you're in a place now where if you don't meet the standard, you just, you know, there's no pass, there's no go ahead and you can do it anyway. It's just, you know. But yeah, and and I imagine the amount of growth that know. you ended up so, doing so, over those next, you know, eight to ten years yeah, before um, you before you did the test again. You know, like yeah. the people that you met and the experiences that you had that you would have absolutely never had otherwise. You just would have been yeah. underwater from the age of eighteen years old and and maybe not have have grown as much as a person or something. It, I think the other part of it was, and I, I see this a little bit, and I think people are too quick to dismiss themselves. I think this is probably one of my favorite things about the job I have now is uh, a lot of the, I call them kids, but I don't know, when you're as old as I am, everybody seems like a kid. A lot of our kids' students, uh, they show up and, you know, a lot of them are a little worried because we get a very, what's the word I'm looking for, niche market of people coming to be divers. You know, it, it attracts a certain kind of person. And often those people are also not the people who took things like chemistry and trigonometry and things like this in high school. You know, I'm not saying they're dumb by any stretch of the imagination, but like myself, these are the people who probably didn't go a lot in their lives in academic pursuits, probably more like shop than, you know, chemistry. Right. So um, I get these people and maybe they've been told uh, up to this point that, oh, you're not good at this or you're a bad student. And I really enjoy telling these people, no, there's nothing wrong with you at all. You can do this. And I've seen so many, the transformation is probably my favorite thing. You know, when I come in with a brand new class and I tell them, you know, day one that, you know, among the other exciting stuff you have to look forward to here is physics, you know, and medicine classes and some very serious subjects. And they're like, well, I can't do math. It's like, you'll be fine. And when you see these guys doing that sort of thing and when they realize they're doing it and they're like, oh, I can do this. That's probably one of the neatest things is to see that transformation when people learn to believe in what they can do. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. That's uh that's something that uh that I feel like is almost probably an epidemic is part of like this generation and generations going forward um is such an aversion to to failure and such an aversion to not being good at things and such and therefore an aversion and an inability uh, almost to uh, to put in the time to get good at something um, well, because are, it seems like of, everyone else around you is like oh they're already good at that one thing and they're just so naturally good and there's not a lot of people that are naturally good at a whole lot like yeah. a lot of people just put in a whole lot of time doing stuff and uh, things take time and they just take time it does and like I said the biggest thing is people just need to believe in yourself um, have you ever seen the movie Green Street Hooligans Yes, I used to love that movie. It, it's a great movie, but uh, there was something Elijah Wood said in there during part of it. And I think that's a neat little movie. I mean, beyond all the other things, just kind of to show the you know transformation of the human you know psyche or whatever they want to go on. But the one thing he said, where after he got into his first couple of fights in there, when you realize you're not made out of glass, you yeah. know, the world becomes a brand new place. Yeah. Totally. And it's that same kind of thing. When you realize you can go out and you can do big things or things you didn't think, or even if you're just 
you know, suddenly have the courage to try, you know, the world becomes a different place for you. Yeah. You know, for sure. nobody's going to take your birthday away for trying. Yeah, for sure. I love it. Don't worry about failing because you're not even really going to fail in the first place. Well, what was it? Thomas Edison said he didn't, you know, learn a, uh, one way to make a light bulb. He learned like a thousand ways not to make a light bulb. Or something. <laughs> yeah, exactly. You know, exactly. Even, you know, it's just everything is a growth experience. Don't let it get you down. You know, find out why it didn't work and then change it for the next time. You know, definitely love it, Steve, man. Thank you for the advice, the uh, great philosophical advice. And yeah, thank you for your time. It's such an, uh, an interesting, amazing life you've lived. Thanks for sharing it with us. Well, I don't know if it's all that exciting. It's the one that's gotten me this far. So I just try and stay <laughs> off the streets and out of trouble. Yeah, for sure. Good point, man. So, hey, thanks a lot, Steve. Not at all. Hey, um, can I throw a plug in for our podcast? Or yes, be all right? please do, because, my man. you know, for anybody, you know, still seeking out more of my sage-like wisdom or just feels like me and some others babbling along, we do have a podcast, Any Steve in a Storm. Uh, I do with my best friend, who's also named Steve, and uh, my wife. Uh, we post once a week, and we're on all it was iTunes and Spotify and other places. I don't know. It's not a very good plug, but it's the only one I no, got. My yeah, wife. Yeah, wherever you find podcasts, you can find that. Yeah, yeah, pretty much. Any even a storm, and it's just us talking about everyday light and easy topics. We tried one or two serious episodes and just decided that's not who we were. Mm-mm. So, <laughs> ain't nobody got time for that. No, yeah. no. There's there's enough serious ones already. Yeah, for sure. Cool. Yeah. Check it out, everyone. Uh, I know, Steve, you mentioned that you have had a couple of podcasts where you talk about hot dogs. Like, I mean, that if if that doesn't get you wanting to listen, I don't know what will. That sounds awesome. We do have some podcast uh, episodes revolving around hot dog. Um, As I love to say, me and my buddy Steve are huge fans of the wiener. So (laughs) love it, man. All right, Steve, thanks so much, man. We appreciate it. All right. Well, Blake, I really enjoyed talking with you and spending this time together. Uh, Thanks for having me on. I really appreciate it. Hey, everyone. It's Blake. I hope you all enjoyed the episode. If you did, I would appreciate it so much if you considered leaving a review for the show on iTunes. I swear it'll only take like two minutes. Um, Just search for the show on iTunes. Click on it. Click on ratings and reviews. You can leave a quick review um, or just uh, keep listening to the show. I appreciate that as well. Or tell a friend about the show or something. And if you have any ideas for the show, if you have a particular job or hobby that you would like to hear interviewed on the show, if you yourself think that you do something interview worthy and you would like to tell the world about what this job or hobby is that you have, head on over to halfhourintern.com. There's a link right there at the top that says submit your ideas and you could submit your ideas for the show, be them uh, somebody else that you would like me to interview, a particular field that you would like to hear about, or even if it is you yourself that would like to come on the show. Thanks so much for listening, you guys.